I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. My guest today is Charles Galanis. He is a cosmetic surgeon. And Charles, please give me the rest of the bio. Sure. Um, I did uh, medical school in my native Midwest, University of Wisconsin. I did my general surgery training at Johns Hopkins and did my plastic surgery training at UCLA. And I also did a research sabbatical at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. And a microsurgery fellowship in reconstructive surgery at UCLA. So kind of hopped around a little bit. Um, currently in practice and here in Beverly Hills, California, most of what I do is aesthetic plastic surgery. That about wraps it up. That's pretty deep, man. That's actually deeper than I knew. So obviously the reason we wanted to talk today was to discuss everything COVID. Um and I'm not having you here, obviously, so that you can re- repeat my opinions to me. Uh, I guess what I'd like to do is get your perspective on how the conversation is going and clear up some of the medical terms for people. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I guess I should say at the outset, you know, studying infectious disease is part of every doctor's training. Studying virology is part of every doctor's training. When I was in general surgery, I certainly dealt with infectious disease a lot more than I deal with it now. That all being said, I am not an epidemiologist. Mm-hmm. I am not an infectious disease doctor. So, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be an, an expert on those fields, but I have basically a working knowledge of them. And, and certainly, um, having done, spent a lot of time doing scientific research, I have a fair bit of experience, you know, evaluating papers, evaluating studies to see what's, what's valid, what is truly saying, what it's purporting to saying and, and, and what is not. Um, 
you know, I also have kind of, you know, we, you and I have talked about this. I have a little bit of a strange perspective on this because I have the perspective on one hand as a healthcare provider and as a doctor where, you know, my, my thoughts are first with safety and, and from a public health perspective, as well as just from a patient perspective, that's on one spectrum. On the other spectrum, I'm a small business owner who's been mm-hmm. shut down by this and who can't work and who employs people who, you know, are counting on me for a living. And so I have found those two to be kind of at odds with each other at different periods throughout this and, and probably no more than now. Um, you know, it's been a little bit, I hate that word journey. It's been a journey for me, but it's been, it's been <laughs> a little bit of one for me because, you know, I've kind of, it's almost like, it looks like a sign curve. If, if when I think about what my sort of take on things has been and as best I can, I've been trying to follow the data and trying to avoid the media because what I have found from the outset of this is I've been very disappointed with sort of how the media has been covering this and and it's I feel like it's further polluted or muddied the waters and you know that that's a subject we can certainly get into but my perspective on it today and today is what May what are, what's our date today it's the 15th May 15th so the, my perspective today May 15th may not be my perspective on you know Monday May 18th but but today, um, let's see, would you want me just to kind of give my thoughts on? Yeah, go for it. How do you want to do it? Well, listen, I'm happy to talk about, I, I definitely want at some point to get into what you think, how you think the media is affecting the situation, because I think we may agree on that. Um, but if you want to start with like an overview of what you think happened sure. and is I mean, happening. I'll give an overview yeah. of the data as, as, I, as I understand it. Let's start there. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to present a, an opinion per se. Just these are the, the more or less the numbers. So, I mean, if you look at, you know, the COVID-19 virus is, as everyone knows, it's in the family of coronaviruses, which is not a new thing. Coronaviruses have been around for a while. They're, you know, the common cold is, is frequently linked to coronavirus. So it's not a new virus in that sense. It's what's known as a single strand RNA virus, which is a good thing in the sense that it's a relatively simplistic virus. Um, it's not a very hardy virus. In other words, I know people have been talking about its ability to survive on surfaces, but as viruses go, you know, things like the Norwalk virus, which, you know, that's when you hear about those disaster stories on cruise ships where everyone gets sick, mm-hmm. that virus can stick around in all kinds of environments for a while. The coronavirus actually isn't that durable. Uh, in, in, in ideal conditions, yeah, you can probably keep it alive for a long time in certain surfaces, but in most cases, it's not something that's going to linger around on a surface um, for for terribly long amounts of time. Can you explain that? Let me stop you and sure. ask you a question about the, the structural makeup of the virus, because I have read and heard that there's something around the virus that they call an envelope. Is that correct? Yes. So is it- It's like a protective shield. And once that is penetrated or falls away, then the virus is yeah, and, okay. and, and this particular virus has a lipid coat. So there's different coats that viruses can have. A lipid coat is not a particularly durable one. Um, so a lipid coat is, is probably more susceptible than other things. The other thing that's interesting about this virus, at least as far as I understand it, as a single-strand RNA virus, it does not have a lot of mutation potential, uh, which means that, you know, you know, one of the things you'll hear about, for example, influenza is that there's a high mutation potential. And that's why, you know, if we get vaccines, a good portion of the influenza viruses are, can still work because it's a frequently mutating virus. Uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 probably won't be like that. In other words, if and when a vaccine is developed or if and when there is something that's effective, 
Um, there's not, I don't, I don't think based on the structure, it's going to have a lot of the mutation potential, which is a good thing. So, so in many ways it's, it's a simple virus. Um, what the data suggests is that it's a highly infectious virus. Um, currently, I mean, the estimates vary, but it's thought that one person affects, you know, anywhere between two and three people, mm-hmm. which is pretty high. Influenza is probably around one or actually less than one. And this is the estimated R not. Right. I mean, it, R not has to do with the life cycle of a virus, but you know, just to kind of put it more in layman's terms. Yeah, I mean, please do. It, yeah, I mean, what we're you know, life cycle of the virus has to do with its replication cycle, whereas what I'm talking about is is an extrapolation of the R not to just say, you know, if one person has it, what is their potential to infect others? Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of what I'm discussing. And and so the COVID nineteen virus has shown that it's it's pretty infectious. And one of the reasons, one of the complicating factors with that, as everyone knows, is it's shown to be infectious even in uh, asymptomatic patients, which is a sizable portion of the people infected with this. You know, as little as twenty percent, probably more. We don't really mm-hmm. know. So it's a high, you have a, a virus that's highly contagious, um, and but fortunately, it's not as you know it's lethal, but it's not Ebola. You know, Ebola carries a mortality of forty to fifty percent, meaning you know, Jesus, it's thought Jesus. that almost half of people can get Ebola. I mean. It, that number may be high, but it's it's a sizable percentage of people infected with Ebola that will die. But Ebola isn't as infectious. What what the this is the thing that we're trying to figure out, and we'll talk about that. We don't know accurately yet what the fatality rate is of coronavirus. The number started out very high when it was ravaging Italy. The numbers were four and five percent of an infection fatality rate is what they were throwing around, mm-hmm. which is dr- very dramatically high. Influenza, people have been throwing on 0.1%. 0.1% is actually not the IFR of influenza. That's actually the symptomatic uh, patient in, uh, fatality. So okay. that just means people who are symptomatic with the flu, 0.1% will die. What we're seeing now with the numbers is probably we're less. it's less than 1% with COVID-19. We're probably looking at a, a fatality rate that's less than 1%. Problem is we don't know because we don't the, the data is which we'll get to is problematic. Um, you know the if you look at the, the the places that I go to look at numbers I go to the Johns Hopkins site and that's not because of my training bias it's just because um, I feel like there it's just data that's I think pretty well compiled and I would, I would urge people to look at that as sort of a a sim- simple way to look at the numbers I think CDC numbers. Frankly, I think a lot of that is it's very convoluted and could get very confusing. But the Johns Hopkins site really breaks it down into the counties, the number of cases, the number of deaths. So what we're dealing with is a virus that is it's a pandemic, meaning it's it's spread. It's everywhere in the world. We have lost containment and we are in mitigation, which everyone understands has been this attempt to slow its spread primarily, as we were initially told, to let healthcare systems catch up mm-hmm. because initially New York reached near a critical breaking point. New Jersey was in a, in a little bit of a tough spot. Fortunately, nowhere else in the U.S. got to that. There were some concerns that Detroit would, um, some areas in Chicago and New Orleans, but no one has really experienced the devastation of the healthcare system. Or I shouldn't say devastation, but the but how but the overrun the on the healthcare yeah. system that New York did. Um, so where we are today, based on the numbers, is. Um, we're in, a, we're in a position right now where the hospital system has essentially caught up um, in the sense of ICU hospitalizations or ICU um, capacity is, has caught up. Um, we're not at a ventilator shortage, which was initially thought to be a major concern. We'll, we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. yeah. 
But unfortunately, the United States completely bungled the testing situation. Okay. Because what happened there was the um, international community had a, fun- a working test, as Southeast Asia has been using one, in Korea they've been using it. Uh, so the WHO offered a test, but the CDC declined and wanted to develop their own test. And the first one that they put out, the reagents didn't work. Can I stop you for one second? Do you know what their rationale was in that decision? I, I can't. I mean, I can't speak to that. My okay. my, I have. I could give you my conspiracy theories on this. <laughs> no, you don't have um, to. Man. But I but I don't know the reason other than I, I I think it's just a situation of wanting to have control or wanting to understand and have control of the study and and being able to validate it. Mm-hmm. in their own labs, in their own way. Whatever the reason, it was a mistake. Does that kind of make sense looking back at this point and seeing how many of the viruses, or I mean, sorry, how many of the tests China has shipped around that have proved faulty? I, I think there's probably something to that. Okay. I think that, you know, the, the the situation of the WHO, I think, is not really adequately discussed in media here. I think there is a, there are some big, big problems or question marks with the WHO, and especially in their, with their relationship with China. In the early stages of the pandemic, so that could have played a role. Um, you know, people need to know that CDC is part of the federal government, right? And so, as part of the federal government, they can get guidance from, I'm sure, parts of the federal government saying, "Hey, listen, we don't want to use the WHO test. That's mm-hmm. not, that's not unfathomable." Um, it would have been fine if they had something that worked in a timely fashion. Sure. I would have, ta- you know, I, I probably would have. I'm sure most people would have been happier with a test that may have had some false positives, false negatives, but at least had something, gave us some information. Because what ended up happening is we lost probably two months in the testing game. Uh-huh. And now we're playing catch up. And, and uh, the reason that's, in, you know, this is another thing. The reason that's important, what people kind of, I, I think, missed the boat on the testing situation right now. The reason testing is important is that is what, that's probably the most important information to guide policy. Right, right. But the single most important thing to tell you if a community is safe, I do not believe it's going to be effective as saying isolating people or telling people where to. I, I, I think that we've lost the game on that because we're not in containment. We've lost containment. Sure. It's not a containment sure. thing, but it would help us guide policy in a more effective manner than what is being done right now. So let me ask you this then in terms of uh, containment and the speed at which we may have reacted to the problem. Um, an article came out last night that now they believe in Washington state, the first cases were from late December and that people were walking around with uh, coronavirus in our country at that point, which puts us now six months into the uh, program. And it also unfortunately pushes that that you know first transmission date that they had been guiding themselves on back two months earlier which means that in terms of lockdowns and whatnot it's very likely that the cdc didn't even follow its own guidelines in terms of lockdown effectiveness because after the lockdown effectiveness passes uh, or after the uh the virus has saturated one percent of the population the lockdown is no longer effective or at least its effectiveness drops off dramatically that's what i've read and you can dispute that if you want um i'm wondering how much of a difference that couple of months made i mean that's a three like if you say middle of december that's three full months until we even got into the conversation about locking down well, the interesting thing about that, I think it's a um, an important point, right? Because you, you you believe one of two things. You either believe this is a very contagious virus that first popped up 
in kind of fe- around January, maybe February, we'll say, right? Mm-hmm. You either believe that or you believe it's maybe not that big of a deal and it was here earlier. You can't believe, you can't have both. In other words, if you are yeah. going to... I only take the first one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you can't believe that this is extremely contagious and a problematic virus, but then say, oh yeah, it was probably here in December. Because if it was true, if it was here in December, then either the influenza numbers from December, January, February mm-hmm. were, mis- were miscounted. Sure. Or the virus isn't that bad. So, you know, the, this, I'm seeing these reports where people have done or doing kind of um, post-mortem antibody testing to see if patients had it. And I've seen that. And, and I don't know. I, I can't reconcile that data right now. It doesn't seem to make sense. And the, the data I haven't looked at, Chris, that would help maybe a little bit. And, I, and I ha- I've only seen reports, so I, can't, I didn't get a chance to get to the source. But how many influenza deaths were recorded in January, February? Yeah. But there's a problem with that, too. And that's another issue with influenza counting. So what people don't realize is we probably vastly undercount influenza cases. Because by the time a patient gets to an ICU or is really sick with the flu, they have other problems. They have a pneumonia. They're, they're having right. other issues. Those clotting things that people were talking about with COVID, those actually exist and it's been documented in the literature. There's clotting complications associated with the flu as well. So there's probably a lot of deaths that happened in January that could have been called pneumonia or something else that were influenza or flu. Mm -hmm. We just don't know. Well, you know, Gavin uh, Newsom, uh, I guess it was maybe a month ago, he in one of his midday press conferences said that upon the realization that the Santa Clara, that case um, became the new first COVID death. And the and so that immediately pushed up the date of the first COVID death in the United States from February 29th to February 4th. Now that's three and a half weeks difference, which automatically should shift the entire thinking of, of the timeline of this thing. And at that point, he decided to have the corners in California go back and take a look at what was recorded as flu deaths and try to find out if there was any way that they could spot a case there. Now, to me, that says they have good reason to believe they might or they wouldn't spend the time. Um, and I just, I can't wrap my head around the idea that the that I don't think that shifted anyone's priors. And I don't think that the date of the first case has shifted anyone's priors. Even as late as they believe it to be now, I personally feel like it's earlier and it's not just a feeling i have talked to people who traveled into china and out of china in late october and came back as ill as they've ever been in their lives passed it to their family members and they were very sick as well now when a disease doesn't have a name you assume right and you can by the way school me on this please but i would assume as a layperson that until the disease has a name, you assume it's the other thing. You know, like there's many things that can cause headaches, right. but some of them may be life threat, life threatening, and the other ones just might be headaches. And so, if my head starts hurting, I assume headache. And then, if it gets really extreme, I would be like, "Am I having my first migraine?" But it might not be either of those things, right. you know. And I don't have the name for what the new thing is, so I ascribe my symptoms to what I know could be possible. Yeah. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, it, I mean, that's what would happen before this. I mean, that's the same reason why a lot of people are saying, well, there was any COVID death before this could have been called a flu death because we didn't have another name for it and we just would, would put it into a different diagnostic category. But the thing is that I think that what, what changed was Italy. So mm-hmm. what happened when, when what was happening in Italy kind of became news, then it sort of opened the, you know, opened the public's eyes to this. And all of a sudden then it was kind of a light got shined onto COVID. And then we started to realize, oh, where is this? Is this happening here? And then we started to see that happening in New York. Mm-hmm. And but the thing is, the, the, the weird thing about the progression, both in Europe, actually worldwide and even with the United States, is how dramatically different it can be in close geographic areas. Mm-hmm. Like we, no one can explain why New York was the way New York was and Florida has been fine. I'm not saying I mean, we know New York is more densely populated, but I'm just saying from the standpoint of, you know, why has I haven't got hadn't, no one's been giving me a good reason why Sweden has been OK, mm-hmm. has managed why Germany did has done okay, and then you have Italy happen, or you have Spain happen. You know, there's there's just such a wide variance. I have a theory. Let's hear it. I th- I'm not sure if we talked about this the other day or not, but here's here's my theory. And I've been working in my head with this for a month or so now. Actually, probably, God, six weeks. It's, the time is just disappearing. Um. So the Chinese New Year was celebrated this year from late January, I think the 26th to maybe February 14th or 16th. And there were 3 billion trips taken in terms of uh, travelers moving in and out of China. And now that's not 3 billion people moving, obviously. It's, uh, you know, if I fly from Los Angeles to Dallas to New York, that's two trips. And so if you think of it that way, there were... There were three billion trips and three and let's say it's one quarter of that, maybe 750 million people. Um, at that point, we're talking about 750 million people traveling back throughout the world to their various locations on planes and trains. And that to me seems to map exactly onto what this crisis has been. And then, so something like that gets to New York. And by the way, uh, Italy and Iran both have massive, uh, Chinese populations because of China's Belt and Road Initiative. And so, and obviously New York is a major hub of travel for every place in the world. And so when I, Think about this, and again, totally layperson, not an epidemiologist. I'm trying to get to the bottom of stuff and trying to think of how this thing could have possibly worked. I look at that, and I see that the majority of the spread in the United States has been caused specifically by travel from New York. Uh, Florida's problem now, they're saying today, was almost entirely from people escaping the city and going down to Florida and elsewhere. There's a map today of all these red zones that were directly infected by New York. It's something like 90% of the country's infections were straight from New York. And so I have to think that there's a relation between that mass of travel from the hotspot outward and then everything else developed after that, which to me says Knowing that the virus was actually here three and a half, maybe months before this became everyone's first thought in the morning, um, that looks to me like that relation 
is 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 too much to overlook. I think it I th- look. There's no question. It's multifactorial. One of the things that's interesting about New York is, listen, Manhattan was actually not that overrun, hospital-wise. Right. You know, it was Queens. Uh-huh. It was the, some of the outer boroughs. It was not Manhattan. You know, even within the city, you had people that you know areas that just weren't weren't hit that hard. So there's there's just so there's some strangeness to the presentation and the epidemiology of the disease. And all that is, I mean, at this point, it's somewhat somewhat academic, and that I think will bear out with time. And again, as testing improves, we'll kind of have a better sense, a true accounting of where which areas were hit hard and, and when. I think that where we are right now is in a position of, um, you know, we, we've talked about this, and, and my first, this is where my frustration is kind of coming out a little bit with things is that I feel like the policy that we're making right now does not seem to reflect the information that I see when I look at the data in terms of, you know, where we are currently with hospitalizations, where we are with um, current number of cases, current deaths, et cetera. Um, and, and the reason is part of that is it's twofold. One is I'm still going with the data right now. One of the, re- the one of the confounding issues with the data is like for people to understand the way I look at the data, the two things that I think are most important are ICU hospitalizations mm-hmm. um, and deaths. Yep. And I, and obviously once we have an accurate IFR or infection fatality rate, that will be critical, but we're not even close to that. To me, those are the only three numbers exactly. we need to know. And it really is. one of my, frustra- maybe we did talk about this the other day, but one of my major frustrations is that the media has had access to Dr. Fauci now since January. There's been all of these, um, you know, press conferences and everything else. And I don't understand why. Anyone hasn't asked him, hey, what do you think the estimated IFR is right now? It's unbelievable to me because, you see, the other thing that people don't know is that Fauci published a uh, a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on March 26th, and he himself said that he believes the IFR is well under one and could be as low as the, you know, the, I think people are talking about anywhere from... to 0.5 is where I hear people talking about it now. But that was Fauci. And I don't understand what the media is doing if they're not asking him that question. I'm also, hold hold on, give me one more second to finish my rant. Because I am seriously, like this is really, really bothering me because I think no one is more responsible for the position we find ourselves in right now than the media. And you don't have to agree with me, but that's my opinion. Um, The deaths, obviously, is extraordinarily important. People should know how the deaths are being counted because a bunch of them are possible COVID, and those are being counted as cases. We're using the word cases, which isn't the same as new infections, although the news is presenting it as new infections. Texas has had its highest day of cases. Well. They're testing people with antibodies who might have never had symptoms and might have had it two months ago. And so that is not a case. Right. So to to your point then, so the, you know, looking at these three numbers that matter. So we have number one is ICU hospitalizations. It's really hard to get what that is. Mm -hmm. All I can, all I've been doing is I I have friends who are anesthesiologists and ICU critical care docs. And I talked to them and said, what's your experience right now? So it's kind of a boots on the ground approach because, you know, I don't, we don't have anyone out there saying, 
you know, nationwide, ICUs are at 20% utilization right now. We, there's, no, there's no reliable place to get collected right. data like that. And, and I understand it's not easy to do. That's a number that will change widely. But, but that's, that's number one. So that, that number is I just don't know. But we, we're pretty sure, especially based on what Cuomo is even publicly saying about the situation in New York, that the hospital system is caught up in this, in, from the standpoint of beds. Okay, that's number one. The reason that number is important is because that's that was the entire point behind social distancing. I know. So that's why that number matters. It's not even about deaths. It's not, it's it's really about what how many beds are being used in ICU. That's number one. Um, number two, the the deaths. So to your point, this number has also been muddied because in mid-April the CDC changed the way they allowed, it was, I think, on April 15th, the CDC redefined how people could define a COVID death. And a COVID death was essentially anyone who died who at the time of death was either positive for COVID or suspected to be positive for mm-hmm. COVID. So, and I mean, people have talked about this, but I don't, think, I don't know if people understand what that means. You could be in a nursing home dying of, or in assisted living or in hospice, hospice. dying of pancreatic yeah. cancer. And if you have COVID, which, you know, anywhere between 50 and 70 percent of the deaths are coming from nurse, nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Correct. But if you have COVID, that's a COVID death. You're driving, you know, Chris, you're driving to go somewhere and you get in a car wreck and die. And do <laughs> I don't think they're counting those. They do a swab <laughs> and it's and it's a COVID death. It's I mean, it's crazy. And the other reason, the other thing to bring up with this that is not popular to say, but I have to tell you as a healthcare provider and having worked in hospital systems, there is something to this. They have incentivized hospitals yes. Yes. to put COVID in the diagnostic in their ICD-10 codes, meaning Meaning when they submit to billing or when they submit the paperwork, it lists COVID as a diagnosis. And they can do this without having a positive test. And the, the incentive there, the, the financial, financial incentive that was yeah. provided, was a part of the relief bill. And we are also talking about this mass of money being distributed for COVID patients at the same time that governors like ours in California – Closed hospitals to elective surgeries and other non-COVID treatments and doctor's offices. And so now what we have is a lack of the main source of hospital funding and one place to get money from. And so, so that's... Am, I'm so not off base there? What's it? No, it's, I think it's accurate. Okay. I mean, I think it, it's a fair argument. I, th- I think it's a valid argument. So we've talked about how the... the, the um, ICUs, we don't really know the death, the number of deaths. Difficult to interpret that data. I'm sorry, but the number has been corrupted, so I don't know what that means. Now, if you take, let's talk about LA County. LA County is saying about 17, 1800. Mm-hmm. If you take out nursing homes, it's 800 people. Right. So 800 people in a county of 10 million have been have been called COVID deaths. Okay. So that's just to give a frame of reference in LA County, um, which put, which doesn't even put LA County in the top five. I think it's sixth most. Sixth most in the country. Mm-hmm. There's, I think, Cook County's ahead of us, Wayne County, and three counties in New York. Um, okay, so that number I don't know how to interpret. Then we get to the, you know, the infection fatality rate, which we've already discussed. So basically, what I'm saying is these three numbers, which are the ones that make that are the most important, and should be the ones that we're shedding light on and really trying to kind of talk about and with a real conversation in the public and, you know, with policy policymakers, we're not. We just don't have it. Now, now again, I think that that can, you know, 
at least one and probably two of those will improve as testing gets better. So what we're left with right now is what do we do with the available information that we have? What can we look at as being reliable data and action of what, what I guess a military person would call actionable intelligence? Mm-hmm. Okay, what do we have that's enough to give us? Well, I think what you have is by most estimates, you can let's say you assume a uh, fatality rate somewhere between 0.5 and 1, and 1 is probably high. Let's say it's 0.5. Okay, Um, And of that 0.5, the majority, probably around 70%, is going to be um, the elderly and or those with comorbidities. Now, much of that is actually both elderly and with comorbidities. Yes. Now, does that mean that a 40-year-old who is otherwise healthy cannot get COVID and cannot die? No. Yes, it can happen. What I have found a little bit concerning is I feel like when that story happens, it gets to the front of the press line and it's presented as like, this is, look, here's a 40 year old person with no comorbidities who's dying of COVID. Yeah, it's terrible and it could happen. Children Children are more susceptible to death from the flu. Right. And that's something that we have vaccines for and most of us don't even take them. Right. So so it's not to discredit the fact that or discount the fact that, listen, young people can get sick. But statistically speaking, it is an extremely low number, extremely low number of people who will be, you know, certainly dead, but even so sick to the point of, you know, prolonged high ICU hospitalization. It's just a low number, period. So when I look at kind of where we are right now in terms of making policy, and if I was someone that was in government and had to think about, okay, we have this health thing, which... By the numbers, if you are a relatively young and healthy person, probably going to be okay. I mean, almost definitely. To the point of like 1 in 10,000, 1 in 50,000. Right. Yeah. So probably going to be okay. Um, and then you have another population that's not. Sure. I, there, is a real, there is a real argument to be made that we need to start talking about mobilizing that part of the community for the betterment of society. Now, do I think we just open things? As, no, I think you. I think, and we can get into the whole idea, the arguments on theory on this. But listen, I understand that the principle, the th- the thought behind social distancing and some of those parameters. I think it's reasonable to continue those as best we can. You know, moving forward, and again, until we have more information. So I'm not suggesting that everyone just kind of goes about life as normal if you're 35 and healthy. But that's not the discussion that's being had right now, and that's not the message that's being delivered, and that's where that's where I'm frustrated because that's that's what to, to me when I look at the numbers, that's what they suggest, uh-huh. um, and that that's the the side of me that's the small business owner, the side of me that's a physician says, look, we don't know, um, you know, the numbers are tolerable right now, so it's 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 kind of paralysis by analysis. We're just let's just stay where we're at. They're staying here, and yeah. let's just keep throwing money at everything else and just just keep the status quo. And I think that's, I understand on the doctor's perspective, like what drives me bananas is, you know, they ask Fauci, well, he's a doctor. He's not going to tell you, of course, as a physician, you're going to say, yeah, if you don't want to get sick, stay home. If you want to play it safe, stay home. And he has a different responsibility. responsibility. Yeah. He's doing his job. He's, you know, and, and, and to his credit, he has said that, you know, when, when uh, Rand Paul Hay said, you know, you're not the end-all be-all, Fauci said, I know I'm not the end-all be-all. I just – my job is to give health care advice and counsel. It's the policymaker's job to take that information and weigh it against other factors. And that's, that's where we have a, a problem. I, I have think. two comments to that. The, the first one is that the way the media has treated Fauci and handled the whole thing in our 
technocratic utopia that, of course, we obviously live in. Uh, we have to listen to the experts and trust the science. They actually intentionally set up a war between Trump and Fauci that did not exist right. so that they could make Trump look like an idiot. And then now, of course, everything that Fauci says is supposed to be like weighed as the only thing that matters. Well, here, I mean, I'll, you know, to your point about Fauci and the experts and all these things, um, I think this speaks to this, this phenomenon in our society now where we yield our sense of free thought, as you, I think, have been discussing yourself and just kind of giving it up to, well, the experts said this. The problem that in this current climate is that the issue that's happening when you're in the middle of a crisis the way we are, it's not just a healthcare crisis, right? Right. And that's and it's become exclusively a healthcare thing, as if healthcare lives in a vacuum mm-hmm. and nothing else matters. Well, they think the same about the economy. The economy is the stock market. The economy is you wanting to get a haircut. No, the economy is people's livelihoods. It's the yeah. ability to pay for healthcare in the future, pay for your kids to go to college. I don't understand how this does. Oh, and this is the other thing I was going to say about Fauci. Sorry. One of the problems I have with Fauci, I don't have a lot of problems with him. I think he's a good man who's doing his best. I think that people like him are too reliant on models. And I think we as a society are too reliant on models. But he was on CNN at the beginning of April saying that he didn't know why a national lockdown wasn't happening. And so he can say as many times as he wants that he's not uh, controlling public policy. But when he airs that on CNN and that's what everybody starts sharing on social media and that's what everyone sees, then anything that's not the national lockdown that he suggests is ignoring the science, wanting people to die, prioritizing the economy or the president's approval ratings over lives. That's not what it is. And so I have a hard time forgiving Fauci for that. I mean, he basically took the opportunity f- away from our political leaders and the media has been enabling that. Yeah, I think he I think uh, what what has happened and, and the problem I have right now. So I, I, I get into things with some of my colleagues and some other healthcare do- healthcare providers, including people who are way more on the front lines than I am. I have friends who are scared and are burnt out at work. So I, I don't I can't. It's not to diminish that at all. Of course I mean, not. And I, I, people think that I'm doing that when I talk about this too. Like, I, I care a great deal about that, but it's not the only thing. Right. The problem is we have we've be, we are in such a polarized climate, which I thought was relegated only to politics prior to this. Yeah. I mean, and I, I'll, I don't know. I'm kind of curious on your take on this. I didn't realize how much my politics would be affected by this whole thing. Right. It's been pretty remarkable. It's kind of this past month, but but the problem I've had is that. I, I, it's impossible. It's like trying to have a discussion about Trump. Yeah. It's the same as trying to have a discussion about COVID and it, I, it, which is crazy to me. I mean, you're talking about a admittedly very polarizing personality versus a virus Yeah, and not being able to have a discussion saying like, I have friends who are like, you know, you are on Instagram and are like, Oh, you know, putting it like shaming people who don't have their mask yeah. on or yeah. shaming someone. With, oh my God. They always they're around three people. You can't have a discussion. And I've tried to engage people like that in a discussion about what would you think about easing restrictions and opening up? And you would have thought that I just ate their child yep. in front of them. And, and that's the problem I have with the climate now, because I don't, I don't have like a, 
I'm certainly, you know, I get in these conversations with people and it, it, I end up just being a little bit of a contrarian and it looks like I'm suddenly pushed, put in this box of you just care about business and you just want to go do boob jobs and you don't care if people die. (laughs) And I'm like, no, that's, that's not it at all. I was one at the beginning saying, I mean, I have stuff on my social media saying everyone, you know, stay at home, put on masks. Before that, I did have something where I said the media is out of control and I got flack for that. But it's not about that. It's just, I'm just trying to be scientific, but also weighing like, what are our pros and cons here? And I'm just, I'm having a hard time seeing the other argument right now. In the, in the way that Newsom is seeing it, for example. What, in terms of staying closed longer? I mean, of course I do have yeah. to at this point. Well, I mean, so let me, let, let me, let me ex- explain my frustration. Sure. So I'm sure you saw this, but Newsom's, unless it was a typo or I read this wrong, but I looked multiple times, Newsom said that to get to the next phase, mm-hmm. there were a couple. Yes. Th- no, you didn't hear that wrong. I watched that press conference live. I know exactly zero COVID deaths yep. for 14, 14 days. Deaths. Now to people that are, you know, anyone listening, and no raising cases or something like that. There was something else, which that's ludicrous. Cause that's a hundred percent about testing. Of course, the, of course. but the, even the zero COVID deaths, do you know the last time there was not a single influenza death in a week? Years. I don't, it's, it's been at least 10 years since we've had not one influenza death in a week. So, so the reason I, so I get frustrated when I see that because we here we have a policymaker who you'd think has people with him explaining how this works, explaining the disease process, explaining what the, what's going on right now, putting out a completely delusional statistic for reasons to move forward. And so I'm not speaking to someone who wants that business. I'm just speaking to someone looking at the science and saying that number doesn't make any sense. It's, it's no, absolutely no. absurd. It's also impossible. That means we're close yeah. to it. Yeah. It's just, it doesn't make, it's, it's just unfathomable. And yeah, when you look and say there's 800 people in LA County, 800 who've died of COVID who are not in a nursing home, right? That's not to say that anyone dying in a nursing home doesn't matter, but I'm just saying among the, if you want to call it the working part of society, the part of society that ha- that's keeping the economic system functioning, keeping quality of life functioning. Right. Right. 800 people, okay, yeah. in 10 million. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to even just look at that number and say, okay, what can we do to start mobilizing parts of the population while keeping an eye on what's happening in the ICUs, while continuing to ramp up testing, while doing these other things? And no one's having that discussion insofar as I can tell. So – yeah, getting back to Newsom for a second. One of my problems is that people like him and people who are kind of on the left, progressives, whatever, all Californians apparently, um, they are like completely tickled and dominated by the belief that whatever they're doing is following the data and following the science. And Newsom says that over and over and over again, as if there is one set of the data, like it was passed down from on high and that, he, you know, it just ended up in Gavin's hands and that he knows for that reason, it's okay to have the beaches open, but not sit down on them. That's unbelievable. And he, Along those same lines, the reason our hospitals and, uh, you know, when they couldn't do elective surgery and all this, that's because the uh, IMHE model predicted that we need certain hundreds of thousands of beds across the nation. And so everyone was like, oh, my God, we got to follow the model, close down everything. Okay, well, 
you made an error, okay? Because you took that data that has variables. Tell me if I'm wrong, but those models are only as good as the information that goes into them. If you put in garbage information and garbage assumptions, you get garbage out. And so now what we've done is we've directed corporations to make ventilators we didn't need. Uh, We've closed down hospitals, some of which are going bankrupt and will never come back. We furloughed doctors. And all of this was because they thought that respecting the data was the most important thing you could ever do as if there was only one set of data. That is unbelievable to me. And at some point, I think that people who are like us and, uh, you know, maybe I should say maybe more like I was five years ago, I don't get how when the model gets it wrong and the politician gets it wrong, the excuse, well, we were just going with the data, is fine for these people. Like, okay, well, everybody's always making decisions with whatever data they have. They might not be written down on a page, but we have reasons, determinants that that change our decisions. And to not hold these people responsible for these errors, and I know it's not going to happen because people think Gavin's a hero. People think Cuomo's a hero. Cuomo directed sick patients into nursing homes. And by the way, California is still open to that as well. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So I think um, he, uh, let me I'll play contrarian a little bit yeah, to your no. point here. Yeah. So I do think so. All we have are models in certain situations when we're dealing with right. something that hasn't happened before. That's the best we got. And I think when you're talking about healthcare, if you have models which are predicting hundreds of thousands of deaths, million over a million deaths, mm-hmm. you're not going to find any politician in line to say. This model's wrong, but hold. But agree, agree. So, so I I understand, you know, where the rush came. That's I don't I don't take fault with the, you know, shelter in place, the stay at home, even shutting down non-essential businesses. I think based on the information they were being given, and I don't even honestly, I don't even. Here. Yeah, and I don't even blame the people making the models per se, because again, this is They're something we just haven't, that. we've never had to do before, right? So, and and an epidemiologist is going to err. On the deadlier side, they're they're going to err on the side of the most devastation, and that's very human. Yes, so I'm okay with that. I think where I have a hard time now is when we, which I think is where I'm kind of aligning with what you're saying. When the data is changing, and the models have changed, yes. they haven't. Yes. Listen, they still even the University of Washington model, which is one most people do now. They initially cut way back on its fatalities and then it kind of raised them back up because it said well people are not social distancing so whatever but but the, the nonetheless the data has certainly changed the models have certainly changed but the policy hasn't right the policy isn't changing and and the and the rhetoric isn't changing can i ask you one question and again i don't want you to speak on this outside of your you know professional duty right i'm concerned that perhaps when they adjusted that model down they weren't anticipating hospitals classifying potential COVID deaths as COVID deaths. And so there's a possibility that their model's still right. <laughs> and yeah. that, I mean, again, maybe I'm talking about a 10% probability situation. Like I know completely that I could be wrong. But the fact that we're not thinking about that 
that well, the fact that, that we the fact that we can't question yeah, some of the yeah. things without you know coming off a certain ways is unfortunate because I think there is you know there's there should be room for reasonable debate on this, and I think especially now it's become a, a real sort of contentious topic because now we've ventured into the this territory that I have never experienced in my life, which is we are living in kind of it's not a police state, but we are living in a very un-American society right now, which is something none of us have had to deal with ever before. None of us have ever been told, no, you can't go get a coffee. No, you can't go to that park with your dog. No, you can't go to the beach. That's a very un-American thing. And, and I think, you know, I'm from Wisconsin originally. So I was, I, I was kind of, (laughs) I had a special reaction to the state Supreme court of Wisconsin a couple days ago saying that the stay at home was unconstitutional. But that it only got to that because it's been going on so long and I feel like there hasn't been a communication of what's what's our end game. Why are we moving the target? What's what are we what's the yeah. what's gonna tell us what that is? And I think, you know, when 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 initially we did the stay at home, it's well we gotta let the hospitals catch up. Well, those have caught up now. However, PPEs have not fully caught up. Mm-hmm. Testing hasn't caught up. So, I, so there is an argument that we haven't fully caught up from a healthcare standpoint. So that's why I think that I don't agree in just opening everything up. I think that I think doing a, a phased opening is fine, but a phased opening that makes sense. And insofar as I've seen what is being presented by Newsom, I can't really make sense of it from a, as on the scientific side of things. Yeah, I can't yeah. seem to make sense. Why is a why some businesses are allowed to be open and why others are not. I don't, some of them don't, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, the, the whole beach thing was ludicrous. I, that doesn't make, that, that's the dumbest thing I've Like the idea that you're more likely to get COVID in your doctor's office than you are at Walmart yeah. <laughs> is utterly absurd. The idea that you're more likely to get COVID at someone's little like dress store than Walmart is utterly absurd. So I got a funny thing for you. I my I'm building a new office right now, right? Mm-hmm. And we have to send permits or we have to have the the city of Beverly Hills has to do evaluations of the property, you know, as we're doing these constructions. Sure. sure. The, the, these requests are mailed to them. They quarantine the mail before opening it. That was me slapping my head. <laughs> So it is. So construction gets delayed because they won't open the request when they get it. It's. I, I just. I don't. I mean. I. I hear. These are the things I hear that I just kind of my eyes roll back. Okay. So this is something I was thinking about yesterday. I, I really want to ask you about. So what we're talking about right now, um, in terms of the lockdowns, a nationwide lockdown is not something that's been tried before. There have been centralized quarantines, there's been mask wearing, there's been social distancing in pandemics and plagues in the past. A nationwide lockdown is not something that that has been done. And uh, beyond the taking an ax to it rather than a scalpel, that the, the lockdown itself is an experiment in public health. Yes. And these are... The, the lockdown strategically has been an idea devised by epidemiologists. I don't know who else would have participated in a decision like that. But nonetheless, it's an experiment. Not only did we do the lockdown way too late for it to actually be effective, but there's no proof that lockdowns work in the first place. Correct. Lockdowns work theoretically. And 
so so what we have now is an experiment on humans, on an economy, on an entire culture that, by the way, we're not guaranteed to get back. And I don't understand the logic there. And Fauci, again, not to I'm, I'm this is not the like slam Fauci podcast, but you as a doctor, if you saw a patient and they had something bad, maybe you knew, know what it is, maybe you don't. But let's say they just had a sprained ankle. If they came in, obviously, I know you don't deal with sprained ankles, but if someone came into a doctor's office with a sprained ankle and the doctor was like, ooh, that's a, that's a really bad sprain, I want to try this uh, experimental solution that no one's ever tried, and it, it could make your ankle even better than new, and then they don't tell you about the fact that, like, oh, maybe we have to amputate your leg on the downside if something goes wrong. I mean, that's where we're at right now. And I don't remember Fauci talking about what the downside of his proposed treatment would be. There was no assessment of risk. It was like, this is what we need to do. We need to lock down. Well, I think that a couple things. So first of all, I, I think a better analogy would be. You- Please improve it. It's, it's, it's in its early stages. No, I get it. But I, but, but I want to kind of work with that because yeah, okay. to counter that, I think a more um, an analogy would be you have a dying patient okay. who presents with a, you just the patient you just had before that patient looked just like them and died. And now you have another patient who has the same disease process and you're like, I'm, I'm going to throw the kitchen. I'm going to throw the kitchen sink at this. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to work. I'm going to just try this. That's probably what the analogy is. We don't, our best guess is this is going to save this person's life. And so we're going to do it because we're, it's a life or death question. Totally fair. Um, Go ahead, finish. But, and then, you know, my other point was it's not Fauci's job to say what the risks were. So, so Fauci's job, I think was to say, listen, the most, the best thing that we can think up to deal with this is shutting everything down. It then falls on the government in the form of Trump administration governors to say, okay, thank you, Dr. Fauci. We're going to take that under consideration. We also have our economist here. We have our sociologist here. We have a social welfare person here. And we're going to sort of put our heads together with the information you gave. And then we're going to figure out what might make sense. You know, and maybe that doesn't happen right away. Maybe they say, okay, we're just going to do what Fauci says because it's scary. But once we realize it isn't, as scary, then it's time to say, okay, let's, we need to weigh these other things. That's, I'm not waiting for Fauci to say, Hey, this is the risk of the lockdown. I'm waiting for the, you know, people like that's actually, yeah, that's a great response. That's totally reasonable. And I accept that. So perhaps it's not Fauci's fault, but someone should have been there saying, this is the downside. And maybe it should have been our media. I'm fine to say it should have been Trump. He hasn't communicated any of this. Well, um, but the idea that we live in a democracy on some, you know, a representative republic, whatever, but there was no say in any of this. It was the media puts this here. Now we have to have national lockdown. All of a sudden, everything that Fauci mentions is something that we all have to abide like religion. All of that bothers me to no end. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I get it. I, I think that. I can understand how that is sort of this, this is frustrating thing that you have, we have basically these rules that are being given to us. 
I think for, for me is without sort of any metrics of what, you know, like you said, I, I'm, don't tell me you're following the data. What data? Yes. Which data? Instead of saying I'm following the data, which what data is telling you to do that? And let's evaluate what that is. And that's not happening. That discussion isn't happening. It's it's there's no transparency in that insofar as I can tell. I haven't seen it. I don't think anyone in this. I don't think any. And I think you'd agree. I don't think anyone on the left, anyone on the right. I don't think Fauci. I don't think anyone here is acting. I would hope anyway with malicious intent. No, I don't believe so. Except for the media. Yeah, ex- exactly. That's, that was the one exception. I think that the media has been irresponsible from the word go. But I think that the people in position to make policies, I think they're doing what they think is safest. And I think that in the end, it may just be all a miscalculation of risks on all sides yep. in terms of yep. miscalculating the risks of the disease, miscalculating the risk, risks of a shutdown. Um I, I just think that we're we're stuck in this status quo right now, at least in California. Fortunately, other parts of the country are not. Yeah. Um, where it's just kind of like, what's what are we trying to do here? And and then we haven't even covered the media, but the way that the media has fueled yeah, a paranoia and a fear. So I so I got in flack on my social media because it was back in I actually looked back, it was back in like early March, beginning of March, and there was a I think you and I talked about this, there was a headline on CNN when we had at that time maybe 100 cases in the US or something documented cases it said anyway and it was a picture of guys with blow torches yes in this like rundown village and it and the headline was you know this scary horrifying headline that i mean it would would make anybody nervous and they haven't looked back they haven't looked back and and what was unfortunate what's what's crazy to me is and most of that, it became a, a political, you could see in the political yes. side, the more liberal biased media versus a conservative biased media, you could see where it's delivering two different messages. And I didn't, uh, and it was, that's why there was a run on grocery stores. That's why people ran out of toilet paper. That's why people hoarded masks, which most of which weren't going to do anything anyway. But yet all these people doing these things and the media just hasn't looked back from that. And what it's done now is it's, it's, seeded this fear now that's been in a person's brain for months yes. that you're going to have people that listen you're going to open things up they're still not going to go out they're still going to be afraid to so the devastation is going to be long past things are open because people are afraid they're yes. scared so i'm writing this right now and i'm not going to like give it all away but i also it takes way too long but People are confusing my stance on masks in social media. I want, I am currently putting out the point of view that masks are not some magical salve. And it, I'm not saying that they don't work at all. I'm not saying that they have no benefit. I don't believe either of those things. I do believe that masks are a security blanket that makes it impossible for us to move forward. Because right now there is no place in our society where we, it doesn't seem like there's any light at the end of the tunnel for people going back to thinking that it's safe to just be around people. Um, And I believe that the masks are part of that. They're how we trick ourselves. It's, It's like dipping a toe in the water. I don't want to live in a world that has plexiglass walls between dining tables in a restaurant. I don't want to live in a world where 
restaurants are half full and there's no life to them. I don't want to live in a world without bars and uh, live sports and concerts. I don't want to live in a world where I am told that I should believe all other humans are vectors for disease. Well, I mean, the analogy I give is we've taken people that know how to ride bikes. We put training wheels on their bikes and I'm worried they're never going to be able to take the training wheels. Exactly. That's exactly what I think. And so I don't think it's a, it's a, it's not a macho argument. Like, oh, I'm not fucking wearing a mask because it's about my freedom. No, it's not about that. It's about the fact that the ultimate goal with all of this was to keep having a good society. It's not right. to conquer this disease out of the world and huddle up in our homes until that happens because that's not possible. And that's why it makes me so mad that the mission creep for the flatten the curve thing has gone so far out of bounds because it was intended to be a couple of weeks so that we could all go back out and people would get sick. We know that. But we would be able to take care of the ones we could and save the lives we could save. It wasn't for this. And I don't know how society comes back. And this is even apart from the economy. Like we have a way of life that is worth protecting. That's why we fought wars. So I I think that the... um the, the, the discussion that is not, I think, understood or is not being considered by a lot of people is that you, we need to, you need to get your head around that you have to coexist with the virus. Yeah. And because I think what's happened because of what the government's been perpetrating or the policymakers have been perpetrating about mass and social distancing is it's created this, this ethos or this feeling that we're going to do all this to beat the virus. Yeah. That we're going to do all this so we don't get sick. It's not the point of this, and you're not going to beat the virus this way. The virus is still going to be there, and we need to be we need to get in a place in your mind where you're comfortable and understanding that you have to coexist with it. And I don't think people understand that. I think people are terrified of it and don't think they can coexist with it. And I don't know how that I don't know how that psychology gets reversed. I'm not sure it does, man. Well, I think it will, but I think it's going to take it's going to take as much time to explant it as it did to implant it. I I hope you're right. Um, God, I I mean, it's so. So anyway, I think that where where we are now, I just I feel like, um, again, I am not uh, I'm not just saying this to be diplomatic. I do think. You know, going back even to the numbers, you know, we talk, people will throw around like, oh, it's only 0.3 or 0.4 or 0.5. Well, that's, you have to keep in mind that you can't compare 0.3 to 0.5 with influenza 0.1 because it's a lot more contagious than influenza. Mm-hmm. So it's, so it's, it's a, it's, it's apples to oranges there. Okay. So it's still a very serious thing that we need to, t- you know, continue to get data on and, and be careful. However, the data that we have still is pretty clear in determining that younger people are saved largely and, and vast, the vast majority of people are going to be okay. And then if you know that, and if you know that we need, we're going to need to coexist with this because we're not going to have a vaccine anytime soon, then what are we doing? Yeah, exactly. What, 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 what are we doing right now? And this is, this is the real crux of my issue because these numbers were already known in early March. I mean, I know he's from Johns Hopkins and I cannot remember his name, but he was on, uh, it's, it's a mesh something and I don't want to mess up his name, but, uh, 
he was talking about the same IFR range then. Fauci printed the same IFR 15 days later. And here we are two months past that point, And we're pretending that none of this can serve as guidance. Because if, if we knew for sure that the IFR was 0.3 at the beginning and that it was well less than one in 10,000 people dying if you're under 50. Right. We don't make this decision. We don't make it at all. The lockdown doesn't happen. Nothing. None of this. We protect old people, make sure that anybody who is interacting with them for long periods of time or on a regular basis really does take care of making sure that they are safe. They need to wear masks when they're with that person. They need to wash their hands. They need to be very sure about their health and help those people be sure about their health. The rest of us have to endure this. Yeah. And and my, yeah. And my other, you know, when I, when I ask that question, what are we doing now? The only, the only way I can on the med, on the doctor side of things, justify what's happening right now is are we truly caught up with PPEs for healthcare workers? Uh And are we, you know, you know, are we in an exponential growth, if you will, of our testing potential? I think our testing potential is growing. It's still shitty. I can tell you because we have, we're in, we're trying to get tests for ourselves to go back to work and for our patients, you know, for surgeries and upcoming, because we're going to, you know, elective cases are going to start to happen soon. And it's not easy to find tests. Is this a matter of procurement, though? Because the state doesn't seem to have any problems. I mean, I get a test, a text once every week or so saying, hey, if you want a COVID test, come here. I think that it, de- it depends on which test we're talking about. Yeah. You know, that's a whole other discussion, yeah. whether it's the nasal swab, there are rapid tests, which are different and, and, ter- and have varying sensitivities and specificities. The best test for is the nasal swab, which is an RT-PCR test, takes a couple days. It's becoming more available, but it's not as readily as it could be. I can actually answer that because, well, not completely, but I had a friend go the other day and they said it was a cheek swab. Yeah, so that's different. So there's different, so that swab is different than the nasal, you know, there's, there's different, which will then have different uh, sensitivities and specificities. So anyway, the, on the doctor's side, that's how I can say, okay, if we're catch, catching up on PPEs, catching up on testing, that can justify in part the, the delay. But don't tell me that the too many people are dying or the case number, because that's not what the data is, right. appears to be showing. Okay. So just level with us and say, listen, we got to get, we think the hospitals are good, but we need, we're trying to get them more stocked up with all these supplies and then we're good to go. I haven't heard anyone say that though. So I, I don't, I'm, I would, I would take that as a healthcare provider and that makes sense because the other numbers don't make sense. Well, to me, you know, when we were talking about why politicians would make these decisions, I'm, very concerned that we are in this state now because, well, first of all, politicians have no idea how to talk about death. Politicians are loath to give any bad news to the people that vote for them yeah. because, of course, they don't want to look like the ones responsible. And now we're way too far into this. Like, you know what pot committed is in poker? Like where you where you have a bad hand, you know you're probably going to lose, but you'll keep betting it because you've already put enough money out and like maybe you'll get lucky and get it all back. But right. you've already got so much invested in the thing that you don't want to uh, pull back from that thing or admit that you've done the wrong thing. And this is this phenomenon is replicated throughout society. I think that's what's going on here right now. Like how 
how can someone like Gavin Newsom possibly say, you know what, maybe we went a little overboard? They can't say that. But but I'm not, and I'm not even, I'm not even asking that he does. No, 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 that's fine. I'm just. Like, I, I, I think that, again, I think that he has been acting to, with whatever, you know, information he's been giving and giving what he thought was a safe plan. I guess my point is, explain it in a way that makes sense to yeah. me at least or you know if it does get to a point where the data suggests a, a change in course have the courage to take it yeah and i don't need a mea culpa that's fine oh, yeah. i'm I, not I, asking for an apology i want the problem to be solved well quite honestly everyone's been wrong at different points right. fauci's been right. wrong at different everyone has there's not a single person who's gotten everything right with this so i don't expect that I just want I'm I've just been hopeful for a more honest discourse and flexible society in terms of having good discussions and being able to take in different points and myself included. Listen, I have debates on this with friends who are very much on their side and I'll say, okay, you know, that's a fair point. Yeah, I have my opinions on it and they're just opinions. And from someone who's not, you know, not the most informed person, I can't be, I'm not in a position of power or with the data that a lot of these people have. But I just don't feel like we're getting that. I don't feel like we're getting that. And the media has been an abomination. And I just, it's just kind of gotten to that point of, and, and where I never, listen, I, I never thought I would understand or look at a militia member going to the Capitol with an AR-15 and be like, I kind of understand what he's saying. I'm, I'm the same way, man. I never had any love for that sort of display. And I don't like the guns. I wish they would leave the guns at home. Right. But I do honor their right to protest. And if it turns out that we don't have a spike in the summer, that it, we don't have a spike in the fall, then this overreaction becomes a much bigger overreaction than we think it is right now. And right. that is a scenario that, I mean, I'm imagining it happening because I think it's going to happen. But that's me. I'm not saying that you have to back that up. But we should be happy that there are people that are going out and speaking up against the authoritarianism of someone like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. She's she straight up said that if people didn't obey her guidelines, then she was going to extend the lockdown longer. Like you're saying that you're going to punish adults that voted for you. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that I never, you know, we're, we're in a, the, the argument, you know, I'd see this all the time on social media where people would make a comment and someone would say, oh, you want to kill grandma so you can get a haircut. It's the dumbest, it's the dumbest dichotomy ever. It was seen. such a, yeah, it was, the, the, it was just such crazy discourse when I, what I think that how do you value, and we're, we're getting into a point in this debate where it's like, how do you value our freedoms and our liberties in the context of, so, of um, public health? And, and it's a, I, honestly, I don't know the answer. I think it's an interesting debate. I think that where do we, when do our freedoms run out in the, in the, in the face of, you know, the good of society? I mean, it's, a, you're almost going from into a socialistic view versus our traditional freedom, liberty oriented, capitalistic pursuit of happiness, do whatever the hell you yeah. want, um, accept the consequences of your actions, but do whatever you want. And I, it's just kind of it's fascinating to me, really, because I, I think it it's this is what I was talking about earlier when I'm saying it's revealing to me where I fall in that. Yeah. When I don't know that I truly had as clear a picture before. Um, 
in the sense of just feeling like I probably at this point err want to err on the side of you know people have the information. We can and we can put some measures in place to try to protect society as a whole, but at the end of the day, we need to let people be free to make choices and accept consequences. I also have a big problem with the fact that this was always presented as well. Now it's shut down. It was no question. It was no. There was no gov. There was no governor asking us, "Hey, we have this problem. We think that this might work. It's not going to work if everybody." doesn't participate so please do your part and do this and we're going to try to get you back to your normal life as fast as possible that's an approach that could have worked shutting things down for one reason then changing the reason and then not telling anybody anything about it until you extend it for another two weeks extend it for another month extend it for another two weeks now we have barbara ferrer who's the uh the la county public yeah public health advisor First of all, oh, a, she has a PhD in social welfare. She's not a doctor. I mean, yeah. she's technically a doctor, but she's not a doctor. There's not a medical history there. And she's just as authoritarian as Gretchen Whitmer. Garcetti tweets out insults to everybody for, for not acting right. De Blasio goes crazy on Hasidic Jews for going to a funeral. Going to a funeral. I mean, it's a mess. And... And then we're talking about, you know, every, everybody now has accepted that the, the only way out is through tons of testing and contact tracing. And it's like, okay, well, the, t- the testing's, we live in the real world, so the testing's not going to be where you want it or where anybody wants it. Contact tracing, I don't know if people know what they're doing in South Korea, but when you land on a plane there coming into South Korea, they put an ankle bracelet on you, monitor your movement, and quarantine you for 14 days. Everyone there is being extraordinarily monitored. And I don't understand how we've gotten to the point where this thing is so scary that we are more than happy to give the government access to every one of our movements. And fine, you can say that they can get it through social media or whatever else, but it's not the same. Yeah, I think... uh... That, that, that's a, the discussion where we get to freedoms. I've always said that as far as monitoring, I don't give a shit because, listen, if it's going to help, I'll do it. But, but, I, but the reality is I just don't see that being feasible in a situation where you have already lost containment. So contact tracing makes sense if you have a society that's largely uninfected or unexposed and then you can really isolate pockets. Well, we've, we've kind of declared that we're past that. You know, We may have as much anywhere from – Five percent of the population or more who's already been infected, and it could be more. So it's hard for me to say that that's going to answer any questions. I think we need data as far as giving us real, honest assessments of okay, this is how lethal it is, and this is how lethal it isn't, and then from that being able to say okay, based on this, we should be able to open up this, that, and the other. I'm with you, man. But but it's just not it's not happening. I think that uh, the public opinion is changing, and what's interesting is. You know, we all talk about government by the people, for the people. It seems to me that in, in the last five to ten years, that's just been about polls. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not, it's not you writing to your senator. It's just the senators looking at what the polls are saying, yeah. these mysterious polls. <laughs> and, I, and I do feel like those are all – they are changing. The, the, they're starting to shift now and people are starting to be like, let's do something. I also think that what's happening in Florida, Texas, Arizona, mm-hmm. Georgia, Georgia. – People are having their eyes on that, and, and I think that 
let me tell you, if, if Arizona's doing fine and Texas is doing fine and Florida's doing fine in two weeks, uh, how, what argument? There's none. What, please tell me what argument you have that we need to keep doing this as, as usual. There's none. I, I don't I, – I mean I felt like this for six weeks, so – <laughs> I, I, I hope we get this. I hope we get answers sooner or have some movements. I still am thinking about my, my friends who are kind of more at the front lines and don't have the don't have the luxury of kind of sitting here on my couch and having sure. a debate sure. with a friend. So I, I'm aware that there's and dude. Those guys are heroes. I and I don't mean I mean guys like men and women. Yeah, no, I mean it's I, I have friends where I, I I think it's scary for them. Honestly, I have friends who are scared because I get my buddies who are intubating patients in ICUs. I mean. That's going to be horrible. You know, there's a dose-dependent response to this. And if you have someone who's giving you a heavy dose that you're being exposed to while you're putting a freaking breathing tube in, those are the people that are, that are really risking things. So I, I definitely feel for those people. And it's, you know, it's um, – so I struggle with that, that notion on that, on that very personal level versus a more global sense of like – it's we just we got to learn to take risks here. We can't live in fear, and we have to move forward and logically, again, sensibly. We're already taking a massive risk. Yeah, and we don't know that it's having the benefits. I don't know. All right, man, this has been great. Hopefully, this doesn't go on too much longer. But if it does, I'm having you back in a couple of weeks. Yeah, no, man. I, I will. I'll probably be more fired up. I'll have an American flag and like a couple <laughs> shotguns in my arms. The you know. Thing, man, is that the media has no idea how many people they're turning into Republicans right now. Yeah, it's really bizarre. But it, I mean, it's I. I've been having this discussion with friends of mine about how my like my politics. I'm. I am not. So I've always been centrist. I voted both. I voted on both parties' side, and you know, in terms of even when I was a bad citizen and You're didn't. Way vote. more centrist than me. I had never voted for a Republican in my life. Yeah, and so, I, so I have kind of I've been centrist on that. I, I just am, I just feel pushed. I'm not being pulled to no. one side. I'm being pushed. Yes, you are. From you know, from a on an ideological standpoint, and it's. And a lot of times, not by politicians. Honestly, a lot of times it's by the media. But um, it's 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 unconscionable to me. I just can't like wrap my head around it. I seriously, I oh, it's just like some people just can't get out of their own way. Um, but yeah, so if we're talking about this in two weeks, and I'll have a grizzly beard, and you know, there'll be there'll be some fresh shot game hanging on the wall behind you. Really, still impressively clean shaven. That's because, strangely enough, as a Greek man, I still can't grow a beard. Like, my brothers and my dad have to shave, like, twice a day. Mine is so disgusting and patchy, it doesn't work. Yeah, mine's mine's kind of like that, too. That's why I always keep it at a stubble level. <laughs> it's, it's working for you, man. It's Thank working you, for you. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, awesome information. I will talk to you soon. Yeah, man. It was a pleasure. Thank uh, you. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and give it a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so new listeners can take your word for it. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at I'm Your Moderator. If you have feedback, you can email heymoderator at imyourmoderator.com or use the hashtag heymoderator on Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, search Be Reasonable on Patreon, where I'll have additional daily-ish segments in a special podcast feed of the show, as well as my writing and audio readings of those articles. You can also go to anchor.fm slash be reasonable and become a supporter there. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Be reasonable.
acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm Your Moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's hell!